acknowledge the First Nations people as the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hi, my name is Akashika Mohula and welcome to the Diaspora Podcast. Last few weeks have been tragic for India and the Indian diaspora overseas. With death, sickness, setbacks and isolation, the second wave of COVID-19 in India truly has hit the globe hard. At Wired Global Media and Advisory, we made a conscious pause as our guests, family and friends battled the upheaval. We have lost many. Even though we are overseas, either in Australia, New Zealand, UK, USA or UAE, each one of us has someone somewhere who has been impacted or passed away. And then there has been the constant bickering, the partisan bickering on how it should have been handled, the overseas response, the delay in vaccination drive and the controversial Australian repatriation with lack of inclusion. As Australia now ramps up the repatriation, I touch base with our Australian resident, Ravneet Pava, who is the Global Deputy Vice President and CEO South Asia of Deakin University of Australia, a multi-award winner leader in Australia's business institutions, and also the president of the Victorian chapter of Australia-India Business Council. Ravneet talks to me about all the diaspora dilemmas, and as the business leader of our times, the gaps that need to be bridged, the Australian repatriation response, the civic sense, the power play, the accountability, the opportunities, the social media parliament, and the atmosphere of rancor. And of course, the deep lack of coordination between centre and states. That aside, opportunities for the two democracies individually that can rebuild a strong, effective policy and politics around COVID-19 coordination. We also take a deep dive in the coping and caring mechanisms of the teams that Ravneet leads, the being hurricane, a leadership journey, the being a leader that not always requires a PhD, and the simple five Ps, the extraordinary, simple, compassionate skills and the know-how to be a millennial leader. Let's take a listen to this episode now. Welcome to Diaspora, Ravneet, and such a delight speaking to you today from Australia, straight into the epicenter in New Delhi. Hi, Akashika. Yes, doing well, right? India in the middle of Delhi and uh, things seem to be a little bit difficult at the moment for us here. And it's hopefully trying to see whether it gets better, when it gets better. I mean, of course, you've been seeing the news and you've been hearing from friends and family that uh, we've gone through a very difficult patch at the moment for the last, I would say, at least four four weeks or so, or, or even longer. And I think that we hope this will settle down. I'm not sure if I should say that's brilliant or what, but yes, it seems it seems like a long battle 
So India, in the last few weeks, you're right, Rabni, we've seen so much tragedy. You know, every newspaper, every digital news, everywhere we are hearing all about India. When I step into work, my colleagues are perturbed and uh, constantly worry about my mental health because life has all been about deaths, sickness, setbacks, isolation for our families. And each one of us have had those tough moments whether we are in India, like yourself, in New Delhi today, or overseas, whether we are in Sydney, Canberra, London, or New York, the diaspora is having a tough time. So with all that going on, tell us how is coronavirus going in your family? Any impact in your family to begin with, Ravneet? Look, um, Absolutely. I've had a personal uh, impact as well um, as a big impact to um, family, friends, colleagues uh, all across. I mean, it's, you know, when you wake up, you don't want to look at your phone um, because, you know, you you know, there's going to be some bad news, um, you know, uh, lost some people uh, in extended family. We've lost some friends, some people also in in their extended family. And that has been the more difficult part, uh, dealing with it. Personally, my husband, you know, my mom, my brother had COVID and I was sort of looking after them, dealing with it in home isolation. And it was tough because with this, the unknown is the more difficult part. And in India, the really difficult part is lack of medical assistance and medical health. So you wake up thinking that if there is an emergency, what are you going to do? There is no hospital ICU bed. There is no um, you know, doctor available on call. It's really hard to get a doctor. Medicines are not available uh, to the point even as simple as thermometers or oximeters were not available for the last couple of weeks. So for, for someone like us, you know, who has been sort of in the midst of this, it, it is really, really hard at the moment, mentally, emotionally, physically to deal with it. You know, one can deal with lockdowns, being at home, one can deal with that situation, uh, because you know, you can't escape it, that's going to be it. And you can you can sort of work through it. But to deal with this mental trauma, and to deal with this whole situation of how do you deal in a situation like that is a difficult one. I know people who have had to set up ICU beds and uh, the peripheral around it at home because there is nothing available in the hospital. A friend of mine was very critical. So I was trying to reach a hospital, you know, with my networks or with all, you know, the connections that, you know, one thinks one has built over the years. For three and a half hours, I couldn't find a hospital bed. So it is tough. But, uh, you know, we are all very resilient, you know, and we know we will come out of this stronger. When is the question? And I do hope that once we come out of it, we come out stronger and we learn from as well as to how we can deal with the situation better. And along with this, there's also the constant bickering of the political scenario that floats, not only in India, but everywhere. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, governments, you know, treat some of this or this time, you know, from a more unemotional view, and it becomes domestic politics story, whether it is Australia, or it is India, or the US or another part of the world. And to me, that is really, really unfortunate, because this is the time when the people actually need their governments to come together in the form of support in the form of enhanced approach to looking at things in a different way. I mean, look at the vaccination story in in Australia, um, you know, look at the vaccination story. I have no doubt that if governments had thought about this better and had laid down 
uh, better administrative processes, things would have been much, much better in our country. As far as the health system is concerned, I mean, of course, we should have seen this coming. You know, it's not, we've not been struck by it out of the blue. It happened in other parts of the world. Why did we not learn from it? Why did we not build better health systems to deal with this? I mean, at the end of the day, citizens are the responsibility of the governments. And um, it's disheartening to see how governments just turn away from it. So let's talk about the vocal for local scenario. There is a passive competition, you know, between many countries to enhance their vocal for local theory of the vaccination drive. I understand that many countries as such are just waiting to build their own best practice or the best medicine of the world for coronavirus. And that could be delaying the whole vaccination process. But that is not the case in India. So how is that vaccine drive going on in India? And what were your views of the vaccine metry scenario? So I've got to two views on this. The first is that, you know, we, we started very well, I think, here in India. We, you know, we have two vaccines, Covishield and Covaxin. Covaxin, of course, is um, the domestic one. Covishield is the estrogenica one. And I think we started on both quite well. Somewhere down the line, uh, you know, we lost track for two reasons. One, maybe people didn't take it seriously enough when the time was better. And two, the government drive was not as firm as it should have been or not as systematic as it should have been. And then we, um, we gave away a lot of it to our neighboring countries without realizing that India itself in the rural sector, in the sort of urban sector is going to need a lot of it. So when we got struck by the second wave and we just got you know, swamped by it, like a tsunami, I think that uh, India didn't know what to do. It got so stuck in the midst of it that it didn't realize that had we thought about a more comprehensive rollout in the last couple of months, we may have had a better outcome of the situation. I don't know whether this would not have happened. It would still have happened because that's what we've seen has happened to the world. But I think that it could have been managed better. So I think that, uh, you know, and then even with the medicines, you know, and then also you see the other problem in India has been about how we have dealt with black marketing of the oxygen, black marketing of the medicines. I think that the government could have taken a stronger role in how to deal with all of this. I mean, of course, the army has been called out for help and, you know, various other things, measures have been taken now. But I just feel that all that has been delayed. We, We could have dealt with this in hindsight, much, much better a couple of months back. So have you and your family been vaccinated? Yes, we've got the first dose of Covishield, which is the AstraZeneca one. And initially, the Indian thought process was to get a second one in about four to five weeks. But then the latest input is about 12 weeks. So we're waiting for the second one. Coming back to what you said about the black marketing, the holding of the medicines and, you know, the other measures that government is suddenly starting to make. How do you think this could have been controlled, particularly the black marketing pace? So what are your thoughts? How can this be controlled? I mean, this is a statewide issue, countrywide issue. I'm sure it's not a worldwide issue. Look, it's the entire ecosystem. Whether we like it or not, India does have a dual economy. There's the black economy and then there's the white economy. And I think that uh, in, in health systems, at least, we should be very clear and the government has to very strong measures in how to uh, reduce, I won't say eliminate because we can't, how to reduce the black market, the black uh, economy. Because 
it is to do with lives of the people. Something like an oxygen cylinder, you know, the industrial houses have come together, you know, to give out oxygen, um, you know, uh, not for the industrial use, but for health reasons. Now, the big issue in India is the transportation of that. And the big issue in India is the reaching of that to the people and to the hospitals uh, where it actually is needed. And in between what's happening is the hoarding and the black marketing of it. You know, I think that if, if the government state as well as central government takes hard corrective measures, you know, which it has now, um, you know, things will get better in that perspective. And, you know, the other thing I, I would like to say is that I can't totally blame the government as well, because the fact of the matter is that India is a complex country, you know, with a very large population size. It is extremely hard for any government to do what it can do to, um, you know, maintain the situation or make it better. So it is it is difficult for anyone in this situation, any government operating in this situation to deal with it. But I do feel we could have dealt with better than what we have. And the other thing I think really is worth mentioning that while we do describe the vaccination drive as not so effective, if you look at the uh, the number of people vaccinated over the period of time, it's in, in terms of you know uh, numbers and in terms of percentages of the total population, it's actually not that bad as we. But again, having said that, India cannot rest on that and say that you know based on the percentage we've done well, we've got to ensure that communities, both rural and urban, um, you know, are vaccinated as soon as possible so that the spread of this coronavirus stops. The first wave we did well because I think that we were, you know, the lock, the right time lockdown that India did. Of course, it costed us a lot in the economy and uh, and in the upliftment, uh, and people lost jobs, and lost livelihoods. But we did save lives because the lockdown was the right time, in the right spirit, and with a. It was a much much more strict lockdown. I remember. I mean, I couldn't even go to the park. So my house is right next to a park. I couldn't even get out into the park. Uh, for a walk, uh, you know, and not even the only thing one could do is was go to the grocery shop to pick up, you know, your uh, veggies and your milk and bread. That's all you could do or to a medicine shop, which was again in the area just to get the medicines. That was it. Um, and, and I think it worked because it did it did snap, you know, that uh, that phase which was on the growth side. Uh, the, the graph was going up and then it stopped and then it started to come down. I think this time we took things casually, both people and the government. I wouldn't just blame the government. I think people too. Uh, you know, people started having large gatherings without masks, without restrictions, without the cautious approach. And the disease is such that it is it spreads through people. You know, it spreads through uh, contacting people. It spreads through being with people. Um, and that's what actually happened. And uh, it just, um, I mean, I remember I, I was at this um, um, large scale conference, uh, you know, again, that one did meet all the social distance requirements, but there was no mention of this at all in that. So no one actually saw it coming. They were talking about double digit growth for India. They were talking about how stable India is going to be. And everything was going in the right direction. In a week from that, you know, we got hit by this tsunami. 
And it just changed the entire um, situation for us, both economically and and, uh, the health situation. So I I feel that it's a misfortune that uh, India got hit by it so badly, Um, with Delhi being the epicenter. It started with Mumbai, of course, then Delhi being the epicenter. um, And I think between the Delhi administration, I feel, did not invest at the right time with the right approach to enhancing its healthcare system. And then the privatization of the health uh, care has also not been to the extent that it has actually helped uh, the system. There are lots of private hospitals, but they're still not what enough for people. I mean, see, most health systems are around coping with, say, 15, 20% of the population at one point of time. Here, in this situation we've had, I would say, I personally think, I don't know, I could be wrong in my figures, but with my network, talking to people, friends, family, extended, all of that, I think at least 60 to 70% of the population has gone through it. And and because it is such a deadly uh, virus, people are um, extremely cautious about uh, medical health. And, you know, symptoms then rush you to the hospital and the hospitals have been overcrowded and we have not had um, the ability to deal with that kind of thing in a systematic manner. New hospitals have come up, you know, religious places have pitched in, but it has not been managed very well, in my view. It has not been centrally driven. So to say, you know, you, you every day on WhatsApp, you get this app has been developed, that app has been developed, you know, uh, this phone number works for oxygen, but it doesn't actually work. So the government has not come up and said, okay, here we are, this is the central space, this is how we're going to deal with it, this is how you have to work through it. And there is a process to the madness. That has actually not happened, Akashika, and that has led to complete chaos. With my family in Delhi, we have often discussed the failure of those mohalla clinics. You know, while the privileged have had the access to those, you know, limited opportunities of getting ICU set up, like you said, at home and even going to small nursing home style places for emergency if, if they have to be on ventilator, I really have felt for the for the people below the poverty line who've had no access. And the Mohalla clinics, particularly in Delhi, have been a total failure. Coming back to a very important thing that you said, you know, last time when we spoke, Ravneet, we were talking about India's modernization vision and effort in the agri area. And of course, there have been the farmer protests at the Delhi border. think so. I don't know. I mean, I can't really say. I think that um, it's very hard to put anything in terms of where it started from. I do think that the uh, election rallies were not a good idea. I do think that uh, the religious melas that we had, including the Kum Mela, I don't think that was a good idea. I don't think um, opening up people gathering together for any, any event, whether it is a social event or a religious event or a political event, was a good idea in times like this. I think that the government should have taken a much, much more stricter view to this, that, um, you know, in in January, you know, things were open to the point that it was almost normal. And, and, uh, you know, you would hear about few cases here and there. But I think that we, we, when I say we, I mean the people of India, I mean the government of India, took that very lightly. And we didn't adhere to the uh, norms that we should have at that time. And I think that's what put us in the situation. Also, the travel, I would say, international travel, domestic travel, 
all of that started without really strong precaution. And it's very hard to say whether this came from uh, people at the farmers' protest or this came from people that were traveling overseas um, at one point of time, uh, or it came from just people, you know, being uh, impacted and then passing it on to the others. Because the the nature of this virus is, you know, is so infectious, extremely hard to put your finger on where and what. You're right. There is a common and firm sentiment around the public gatherings that we, the people of India, have absolutely objected. Now, moving forward, Ravneet, you know, your heart, while you're physically there, your heart may still be here in Australia. So share with us, how does it feel, you know, when you are now stuck in the epicenter and then the heart beats at times to move to Australia? So as an Australian resident in India, Are you waiting to return to Australia or you're just happy to be there for the moment? What are the dilemmas that you're undergoing? Look, you know, I'll answer this at two levels, personal and professional. My son, uh, 23-year-old son, is in Melbourne and I haven't seen him for now 15 months, uh, which is the first time in my life. He's been there for five years, uh, but every two, three months, you know, we've met with me traveling or him traveling. And that has been life for us for the last 23 years. My association with Australia, of course, is 27 years old. Um, I've been sort of traveling between India and Australia, living in India or Australia for over the last 27 years. So it has been most difficult uh, period personally. But the one reason why I'm here is also uh, for personal as well as professional reasons. So because my responsibility from a Deakin perspective is, you know, to look at uh, global strategies, but also specifically South Asia, I have a team of about 40 people that run uh, that I run an office with here in Delhi. And I felt that I had to be here with them in this time of crisis. I just couldn't leave the country and go, um, you know, to Australia because that would have helped me in my personal. Journey. So, um, me and my husband we decided to um, to to live here for during this period and support family as well as people from work. I know that if I had wanted to get to Australia, I could have. Not now. I think now the situation is much more difficult than in the last couple of months. But uh, we we decided to be here by choice, supporting uh, sort of, of course, the ongoing Australia-India relationship, but also personal and uh, professional ties. I am thinking that, uh, you know, if things get better and things do open up between India and Australia, that I will do a trip shortly. Uh, because of work as well. I mean, being the chair of uh, the, the president of uh, AIBC Victoria and also um, sort of running a global uh, role for Deakin. For my work, I do need to spend time. I think I have not been able to do that for the last uh, pandemic. Ravneet, we recognize your leadership and the special influence that you have led, not only now, but for a long time as the Deputy Vice President Global of South Asia for Deakin University, also as the President for the Australia India Business Council chapter for Victoria. It's a very trying time and you're right, you know, the dilemmas and the choices and, you know, when the borders will open because, uh, you know, recently the Prime Minister of Australia has put a firm rubber stamp that the international borders are not opening very soon. Before all this has happened, there has also been a mandate which has now been lifted on the repatriation of the Australian residents and citizens from India. How did it feel when you heard about that mandate of the jail, going to jail? Should one try to come back to their home country, Australia, and also pay that fine? What were your thoughts? To be very frank, I was completely taken aback because 
I've always found over my 27 years of association with Australia that Australia is a very truly multicultural environment, multicultural society with a lot of respect for cultures, people and citizens. I was personally taken aback because I see myself both as an Australian and as an um and the 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 thought that you could not you could not land in Australia you know and you would be jailed or you would have to pay a fine if you decided to do that because your government doesn't want to look after you or doesn't support you because you're living in another country for the time being was a uh, completely conflict and for a minute i did sit back and say that now this is not the australia i know and this is not the australia i respect i'm glad that it sort of took a back seat and people reacted to that and the government reported uh, the view and they have started repatriation back into australia because you see kashika in today's world and age where you live you know is your choice what you do is your choice but that doesn't change who you are and where you belong because your citizenship defines you know where your responsibility lies i've chosen to be in india like i said for personal and professional reasons but at the end of the day i am an australian resident i can understand completely the australian government's point of view why they did that in in hindsight i can relate to that but how they did that i disagree with that i mean to be frank if if the if the messaging would have been that um, Uh, you know we we do value our citizens in india at the moment you know and we know that it is very hard for you to be in india because of the current situation but for the next little while we will have to uh, either reduce or stop the flights given the current situation but as soon as the situation settles down we will welcome you back in the meanwhile if there are any emergencies please contact the australian high commission or the australian government now something like that is absolutely well understood by any person who realizes that australia has gone through so much to get to a point where it has put itself now in the world place but having said that that is prime importance but you cannot ignore that you do have a responsibility towards your citizens that are in india too so there has to be a balanced approach to it there has to be a more supportive approach to the people wherever they are in the world you cannot say that because you are in india you have to be cut off i just think it was too one sided it was not the right approach at that point and also sentiment wise i think it did hurt the that's right ravni then we've lost few citizens and residents in the meantime as well which has been heartbreaking to say while we also say that repatriation tests that are being done on the ground have been false and when they when we've had the first flight coming into darwin it's been uh, hideous to understand that there were some people who were really not negative and after waiting for such a long time remain stranded i mean there's so much of money that goes into it and the pain in a war zone like scenario in india so truly uh, the heart sits there us which is anyhow we will keep moving forward rabneet what do you think about the budget let's talk about some finance stuff and some progressive stuff from here the australian budget was delivered last week there was not much for the education sector what are your thoughts on that yes i mean i was a little bit disappointed you know the international education sector you know is the second largest export you know 30 billion dollars and i think that the current situation has completely wiped it off especially the university sector that's where i belong as well i would say that 
the uh, budget has not really supported the university sector as I would have expected some support to come through because considering the fact that it's not going to open for another, I would say, at least 12 months, what do universities do in the... Say, if you, if you take universities like Deakin, sort of have been very active internationally, especially with India, I think that uh, we have been greatly impacted. And I'm sure all universities, I mean, other universities with the China situation have also been. And uh, universities are a very strong part of the ecosystem, both domestically and internationally. What an international student brings on board is not just the revenue for the university. It brings a lot to the state, to the country. And I think that the government should see that with a different eye. Uh, on how to support the international education sector, especially the university. So, uh, Rafni, tell me, how is Deakin, an Australian university in India, also leveraging the new reformed education policy of India, where foreign direct investment could be leveraged? Look, it's still work in progress because the policy has been announced, but the next steps of implementation of the policy are still in discussion. And uh, with this whole coronavirus situation, it has taken a bit of a slowdown. Deacon is committed to India. And my vice chancellor, Professor Ian Martin, does say that very, very um, optimistically and very, very clearly that we are in this for the long haul, and uh, we have been. We were the first university from anywhere in the world to set up an office in India, and, and that's been my association. So over the years of, I would say, about three decades, you know, we've built this very strong association with India, about India, with India, in India approaches what Deakin has. The uh, long-term uh, investment of time, effort and money has been largely to ensure that, you know, we, we are relevant, we are agile and uh, we are nimble to do uh, work with our partners, associations in India. At the same time, we've had a large number of Indian students who have chosen to come to Australia at Deakin and study Deakin and are part of the Deakin family. And, and they have gone into various parts of the world, making us very proud. So it's, an, it's a complete system that, you know, uh, ecosystem that Deakin has built over the years. And I see that growing more with the new education policy because it brings in uh, more flexibility. It brings in more space for partnerships, real partnerships. It also brings in possibilities of investments on both sides. And it also brings in a possibility of trilateral partnership, you know, or the public-private uh, sector concern partnership as well. I think it's exciting to look at this stage, you know, of where we are and what we can do in the next five years. And Deakin, more specifically because of our presence, our focus, our existing partners, but also a very strong digital delivery capability. And I think that the future lies in the blended approach. And that's where Deakin's going to... Last time when we spoke, we spoke about the many partnerships that Deakin University was taking. For example, there was an MOU signed with IIT and there were talks about artificial intelligence, perhaps, you know, modernizing and helping India. And that is one of the commitments that I admire about your university. Secondly, my question to you is, as the chair of uh, Victoria Chapter for Australia-India Business Council, India and Australia strategic partnership remains very vital for both the nations. So are there any research 
or areas of research that your university is taking in, in that sphere? We, you know, we have a very strong focus on research and very strong focus on building um, uh, through research because that's what, uh, you know, universities do. We have um, something called the Alfred Deacon Institute of Policy for uh, Forums. It actually provides a high-profile platform for institute to bring together policymakers, researchers, and community members for informed debate on important emerging uh, policies and issues. Um, and that particular institute works very well across in Asia though, with you know, the entire region actually and builds together all of that from that perspective. And that is where I think that uh, you know, we could do more work with some of the existing bodies in India and Australia. You know, at Deakin, we have a very strong approach to interdisciplinary approach to things. And so people working in different streams contribute to the Australia-India story. And, and it's across whether it's health, whether it's, you know, health systems, epidemiology, whether it is artificial intelligence for health, whether it is advanced manufacturing, food, agriculture, sustainable infrastructure, you know, those kind of aspects. And all of that has a sense of community and social sciences and social well-being at the, at the end of it. So there is a real contribution that we like to societies we live in. And that's where I think it is a little bit different. It does fundamental research, but it also focuses a lot on research that makes uh, through the various incidents and the various bodies that operate with. We have seen, you know, we are talking about social media, we are talking about WhatsApp messages, and clearly the scenario that we are in, the conversations the policies, the social media parliaments policies that they talk about, the whole atmosphere of rancor, and of course, the deep lack of coordination between center and states, not only in India, but perhaps here in Australia as well, and, and perhaps everywhere in the world. I mean, like we are talking, look at the vaccine drive here in Australia, or the quarantine logistics, or even back home in India, where you were mentioning, you know, getting just the basics, medicines and equipment from one place to the other. The, the whole supply chain industry needs a total reform, whether it's just the supply chain technology, or it's even the political gurus who need the policy change. How do you think Deakin University can influence these two democracies, given the passion of the story of India and Australia, to build strong, effective policy and politics around COVID-19 coordination? Well, I think that, uh, you know, at Deakin, we have a very strong focus on supply chain ecosystem. Um, there is there are a couple of people that are working actively across the research side of it and implementation and from a business angle of it as well. So I think that if we actually do this uh, within the university sector, uh, contributing to policy, contributing to the value chain uh, and bring in um, industry and, and government partnerships together to ensure that the um, implementation of uh, the well-oiled um, policy machinery works, uh, I think could be a good way forward. But supply chain is a is a big issue worldwide, I think, uh, specifically in India because of the size and complexity of them. Um, and I think that uh, universities like Deakin can work with local partners, uh, local policymakers, and uh, local implementers uh, here to, uh, to add some value to it. I don't say we'll be able to solve the world problems, but I think bring in some element, um, make it a shade better. Brilliant view. Now, world aside, Ravneet, let's talk about you. What does a regular day in this COVID world look 
like for you and your team? Well, at the moment, the regular day <laughs> looks very different than what I had imagined it would look. You know, I normally start my day, say, um, you know, about nine o'clock is when I start my work sometimes earlier given the uh, time difference but normally I would say anything between 8 30 to 9 is when I start and uh, between uh, 9 and um, 5 India Standard Time I am on my computer uh, zooming uh, largely or just trying to do phone calls and you know do regular work so it just becomes uh, first half is normally with Australia because of the time difference second half is internally with the office here and the Indian partners and the Indian associates or the South Asian partners, and then wind up by about 5, 5.30. And, um, you know, then there's not much to do because we are in lockdown at the moment. So maybe have a little bit of a walk just outside um, in the driveway and, um, you know, just think about when the situation is going to get better. And I, I do um, a bit of um, reading, a bit of music, a bit of Netflix. I think that's a lot of not bit, I think I would say a lot of Netflix is happening these days. Um, and then there's nothing else uh, other than talk to some friends and family. Um, so what are you so reading? Me and my husband are here in, in, in Delhi at the moment. So, um, you know, that's where uh, we spend our time. Um, I, would, I would have liked the situation to be different where, um, you know, engaging with people is, uh, uh, is something I really like doing. And as part of my work that um, I've done that a lot over the years, and uh, the network is quite strong. So I would have really liked to spend more time with people around. I don't read anything heavy, I read some very light stuff. Um, you know, I do a lot of reading with my work and during the day. So I try to just keep it light. Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, and, and I stopped listening to news because it is very depressing, uh, extremely depressing about what's happening. They're only talking about death tolls and um, how inefficient are, how terrible this is. And then there's another wave that is very dangerous for children. So it just takes your mind to all the uh, you know, sort of negativity around. I'm a firm believer you've got to be positive. You've got to remain positive. You've got to um, keep the positivity around you is that's where the vibrations are and that's what's going to take step so I do connect with my colleagues very regularly um, you know some of them have gone through COVID and difficult times uh, you know so to just be there to support them just be there to tell them we are here all in this together um, you know um, is a very important part of uh, how we've managed the situation um, you know, like I say, we are um, sort of a Deacon family in India, and I very regularly connect with the leadership of Deacon, um, you know, the vice chancellor, the deputy vice chancellors, uh, and so forth. So it does feel connecting, but it still feels very isolated, and it still feels extremely difficult to deal with. Uh, it, it does require a lot of resilience, um, you know, as a person, as a family, as a community. Uh, you know, the one thing, uh, Kashika, that has uh, made me really proud of um, uh, the Indian, um, I would say, value system and the Indian setup is how people have come together to support each other. It is amazing how, uh, you know, you put one question in a WhatsApp group, uh, you know, I'm part of a couple of them, and everyone's out there to help you with some information, some feedback, some connection, something, uh, you know, then you start also getting calls about how they can support you. Um, so I think this has brought together a whole new spirit of um, we are in this together and, uh, you know, the communities and even Deakin uh, University, um, you know, the vice chancellor and I talked about what Deakin can do uh, for India and we are working, we are hopefully going to you know, sort something out that we do with the Tata Trust. Tata Group is a long term partner. And um, 
shortly you will see an announcement of supporting some initiatives through the Tata Trust, uh, which will go directly into. Um, so, you know, on, on a personal side, my heart uh, goes out to that have lost their dear ones, but uh, it also makes me believe that uh, this has brought India together uh, in a different way, you know, not, which, which perhaps would not have been possible, uh, you know, in the life that we were leading prior to the pandemic. It's really soothing positivity, Ravneet, the optimism. And if that is the ray of hope, may it persist. So Ravneet, talking again about your leadership, women leadership particularly is never easy. You know, we all battle, break the glass ceilings, the bamboo ceilings, the brown ceilings, our feet start aching. Then we have the zoo around us where we have uh, the men, the women, the gender bias, the, uh, you know, own, um, I don't have a word for it, for it, but we do have our own small coterie that's uh, forever competitive, not in a healthy way. How did you deal with all of that? And share with us some leadership lessons and your journey so far. Look, I, uh, you know, I was born into a family um, where, uh, you know, generally uh, people were very supportive of each other and of women. Uh, my father was an army officer and um, traveled across India, traveled across places, uh, met a lot of different kinds of people as we were growing up and uh, had the ability to be very adaptive. Uh, because every two years we would be in a different school, make new friends, uh, you know, and then when you start to get close to people, you move into another place. So we've sort of, I was grown up in that life. Um, And then um, uh, when I got married, I moved into Delhi and uh, my husband's family again, um, you know, I would say amazing um, uh, group of people, uh, so supportive. Uh, about uh, you know, women and sort about um, sort of uh, families being together to support outcomes. And I was all the time supported by my in-laws uh, completely to continue to work because at that time, my kind of work required a lot of attention, a lot of focus, a lot of travel, both international and and. Um, it would have been extremely hard to do it without the support of my family, uh, my husband more so, you know, who, uh, who always supported me, always encouraged me to continue to do work. I remember, you know, I was two days into my role um, in IDP and I was asked to travel for three weeks with a group of people coming in Australia and I uh, called up my husband and I, what do I do? And, you know, his first reaction was go. And I said, but you know, it's two days from now, I'm not prepared. I don't know how it's going to be. I don't know the people, they're all very senior people. And he just said, do it, you'll be fine. You know, and, and that sort of kind of approach has changed my life for me. And uh, my son um, was born in uh, 1997. Um, and it was extremely hard in the first year. There were a couple of times when I did break down. And I said, no, I can't do it. Because the pressure of um, bringing up a child, the pressure of work, the pressure of family and Everything you know, did get on to me, but um, I guess people around me, my in-laws, my mom, um, you know, my deacon colleagues, uh, definitely extremely supportive, I have to say, would not have done it without them. And uh, I've learned so much in this journey, Akashika, um, uh, and there are people who have played such an important role for me. My couple of uh, learnings from this is uh, you've got to have a passion for what you do. Without the passion, it becomes a job. And when you take it as a job, you know, your average. So um, passion defines. Um, the second is patience, I think. Without patience, if you want things to happen today, 
you know, you are unlikely to. So you've got to keep doing things, um, you know, of course, at the pace that you are comfortable, but there has to be a sense of patience, especially working in India, because it's not. Easy. I think the third P for me is persistence. Um, I have had ability to be persistent, both with my colleagues um, at work here, uh, with my colleagues at work in Australia. You know, I had taken, I've dealt with, um, I would say I've, I've uh, uh, sort of gone through three, uh, three or four vice chancellors and, and it has been very different. Uh, the entire leadership space has been, but to be persistent and to keep continuing to work in the direction that you believe in um, has been what the other is. And the other P for me is people. If you don't have the right people at the right time to support you, are unable to, um, whether it is personal or professional, um, and, and to believe in people's passion, to help them grow with their. And then I think lastly, it's partnership. I think that, uh, and commitment, if you don't have partnership uh, in today's world and age, very, very different. At the end of the day, also, it's important that you enjoy what you do. So I think um, humor, uh, health, and uh, a lot of focus around um, you know, building uh, humane um, skills, I think leadership, you know, there are times when you will break down, there are times when things will not go right. And there are times when you will uh, find it extremely hard. But the challenge is to keep resilient, and to keep focused, and to believe in yourself and things around. That's brilliant, Ravneet. I really enjoyed your women forum that was hosted by Deacon. And uh, there were some extremely powerful voices, including yourself in the room. What has been the progress so far from that initiative to date? Well, we've, uh, we'll be working with um, our partner, which is the Tata Management Training Center, um, you know, to build a range of products and programs uh, for women leadership. Uh, we are also uh, talking to Niti Ayo, which is the Indian uh, sort of think tank where women empowerment uh, in terms of how we can support the initiatives that um, the Indian government is empowerment. Um, at Deakin, you know, we have a very uh, sound and a strong um, gender space. Uh, we're trying to see how we can support the initiative in India and, and also look at some leader, the women leaders approaching um, the collaborative approach of Australia India. And I think that has been quite useful to have that forum because people have understood how the committed deacon is and people have also understood how we can actually work together in that. Um, there were some you know, decision makers in that and that has really been helpful for us. So, so anything business, uh, Ravni, do you think it comes down to one's personal standards who we are as a person and what we represent and what we want to create and what we want to think. It's a what combination. Think? <laughs> I think it's a combination. I think that um, you've got to, uh, you know, I see life as a journey and I see that, you know, you come to various destinations. You cannot always think about that one destiny because then otherwise, you know, you don't enjoy the journey. So you've got to be part of the journey. You've got to enjoy as it comes. Um, business, see, India is a relational market. Um, you know, when you start thinking about, if I start thinking about where the best of my outcomes, business outcomes have happened, have been with people, I have built associations with a level of trust, a level of friendship, a, le a level of looking at the same goals, uh, over the years. And that has helped Deakin, that has helped me, that has helped the outcome between the Australia-India partnership. So India is a relational market and you have to invest time, effort 
and money into building the space around it and business outcomes will happen. If you look at India as a transactional market, and if you look at India as a short-term gain market, you know, you will not be able to do business in this country. Uh, so the first thing to remember is that India is a relational market. It is a complex market. You've got to be here and you've got to focus on uh, investment of time, effort and over a medium to long term. That is absolutely stellar. So clearly, trust and oxygen are the two of the most crucial world currencies today, not only in relationships, but exactly how this world must operate. On a parting note, Ravneet, please, please, please share a deep, heartful message for the diaspora while you're in India so we can spread some messages of hope and positivity from the diaspora, you sitting in India today. I would just like to say to all my uh, friends in Australia or any other part of the world. Thank you so much for standing uh, with India. Thank you so much for standing with us. Uh, we could not have gone through this without your support. And we could not have done what we have been able to do in supporting each other without you being there. You are a very integral part of who India is and what India is. And the value that you bring to the partnership, to the relationship and to the community uh, is absolutely astounding. And I have no doubt that we in India will come out of this soon and we will come out of this more resilient and more focused to work closely with the rest of the world to make sure that it is a better place to live in and it is a much, much, much happier for all of us. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed my discussion.